things that we can get. We thank you for our church. We thank you for Ira. We thank you for our community. And uh, we pray that we can go out into the world and leave this place refreshed and renewed and, and knowing more about you, Lord. We thank you for Ben and the message that he's bringing to us, Lord. Help your word be spoken through him and uh, help uh, your word and your example be shown in, in all of us, Lord. We pray that you uh, continue to be with us today and be with us as we leave this place and uh, help us to help us to shine your light. We thank you for Jesus and the sacrifice that he made for us, Lord. Uh, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you, Tanner. First Peter uh, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 6 today, and we should get through three more <laughs> verses. Just to, some refreshers. This is a book written by Peter, the apostle of Jesus. Peter tells us it's written to a group of what he calls elect or chosen exiles dispersed abroad. That There's these lists of churches that, that Peter's writing to. And he's tying these churches, which largely would have been made up of Gentile believers, into this Old Testament people of God. And he tells us that they've been saved by the, the foreknowledge of God, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and that they've been covered with the blood of the Son of God, which leads to obedience. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 12 in the, the Greek is one sentence. It's not broken up into multiple sentences like ours is. It's this chain of ideas that Peter is giving, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that he's stringing together, and each link in the chain is connected to the next link in the chain so that it's not based on the links, but on the, the strength that Peter's rooted it in, the great mercy of God. So we have the great mercy of God in, in, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Then we have this, this great mercy of God leads to us being having a new birth, this living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus stayed dead, the hope would be dead. But because Jesus rose from the grave, our hope is as alive as Jesus is. And from that living hope, we have this inheritance that God has given us. It's uh, imperishable. It's undefiled. It's unfading. It's kept in heaven. It's guarded by God's power. And then Peter tells us that, that through faith, a salvation is being ready to be revealed to us in the, the last days. And so what Peter was talking about in those first three verses that we covered last week is, is that links, those chains, that this salvation at some point is going to be revealed. Jesus is going to come back and we will all face the judgment and we will find our faith to either hold strong in Christ or it won't. Those are our options. It's this chain that, that Peter is creating. And what we're going to see today is he continues that chain as we read through 1 Peter chapter 1, verses, three, uh, verses 6 through 9. So I'm going to go ahead and just read all three of those verses, and then we'll pray and, and come back and dive into them. 1 Peter 1, verse 6. You rejoice in this even though now, for a short time if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. So that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you see, do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your salvation, uh, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this little passage, this little book. 
for this word that you've given us. God, the weight of some of the things that you've written down here are anchors for our souls in times that are hard and in times that there are struggles and times when life's not easy and the faith can be difficult. God, what you give us in your word here is an anchor to hold to. It's a chain that's unbreakable. I pray that your word would encourage us where we need encouragement, that it would convict us where we need conviction, and that we would grow in you because of this. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, back to verse 6. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials. If you remember, most of the churches Peter is, is writing to uh, have not, don't have like a, a government oppressing them with trials, although it's coming down the road. They're going to have some social persecution, but at this point in Peter's writing it, that doesn't exist yet. And for Peter, who's writing this from Rome, Emperor Nero is who's reigning over the empire. And if you know Nero, he was not friendly to, to the Christians. He killed many of them. He lit Rome on fire and blamed it on the Christians. And so it's interesting what Peter tells us to do here. We have this chain, remember? And so this living, the hope that we have, leads to joy. One of the most important things for us to do in this passage is understand when Peter says, you rejoice in this, to understand what this is. Remember, it's one sentence in the Greek. And so what Peter's doing is he's not pointing back to a specific idea. He's pointing back to everything that he's said so far. This great mercy that God has given us, this new uh, living hope that God has given us, this inheritance that God has given us, it's to be revealed. That is what we're rejoicing in. It's these chains of ideas that he's uh, linking together. This isn't some wild tangent that Peter's rambling about. It's this coherent linking of ideas that are meant to be built upon each other. And what Peter says here is certainly odd. Did you catch what he says in verse 6? Rejoice even though you're going through all of these grieving trials. So you're grieving trials but rejoice. Those are two different emotions. Those are two different things that we hold together. What, what he's saying, what Peter is telling us is this rejoicing. And the word that he used means it's this continual Rejoicing, this continual feeling of joy is not like this deep, hard, you should just be laughing with your belly all of your life. If that's you, if you laugh your entire life nonstop, you're a lunatic. But this rejoicing isn't, it's also not a denial of what the world offers to us. It's not a denial that there's actual pain that happens. It's not a denial that there's actual grief that takes our hearts. It's not a denial that there's suffering that takes place. This rejoicing that Peter's talking about is anticipation of when Christ comes back and the joy that has with Christ. It's anticipation that our hope is not dead, that our hope is a living hope. It's anticipation that our inheritance, though we may not physically get to hold it right now, is imperishable, it's undefiled, and it's kept by God in heaven for us. And so we rejoice, not downplaying what's happening and not pretending like it doesn't exist. We rejoice because we know that Jesus is real. And then Peter tells us that that these trials, that these uh, 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 grief, the grief that we're going to suffer for various trials, he throws this little phrase in there that's important for us to see, if necessary. 
necessary according to who. What this is Peter telling us is whatever we go through in life, whatever trials we face, whatever struggles we face, if we face persecution on the looming edge, all of those things are not beyond our God. That, that when we suffer, that when we go through hard times, it's not pointless. We go through those hard times and we suffer through those hard times, not because God is too weak to change it, not because God can't control them. In fact, the exact opposite. God doesn't look at our circumstances and goes, oh, man, I did not see that coming. I never thought they would do that. No, what we learn here is that these trials that, that were sent through, if it's necessary, are a means to an end for us, controlled by the Lord. The suffering that Peter talks about is not a suffering that's internal. It's a suffering that's happening to these people. They're not self-inflicted wounds. We need to be clear on this because in West Texas we will confuse self-imposed suffering without self-imposed suffering, especially for the gospel. If you steal a car and you end up in jail, that's self-imposed suffering. Agreed? You're not praying, God, I don't know why I'm in jail. You stole a car. Maybe that doesn't, okay. If we're unkind to unbelievers... I would argue that would be a self-imposed suffering. See, one of the lies that Satan tricks us into often, one of the lies that we buy into, is that unbelievers are the enemy. That's not the case with the gospel. The gospel doesn't tell us that unbelievers are the enemy. The gospel tells us that unbelievers need Jesus. They're the mission field. But if we're forceful or we're disrespectful, if we're mean, if they make us nasty social media posts because we were like, you need to turn to Jesus or else, and, and they just shut the door in our face or they talk about us behind our, our back because we were rough with them or gruff with them or we treated them as if they either repent and come to Jesus or we're not going to be friends anymore. If we're mean in those type of ways, that's a self-imposed suffering. We're called to speak truth in love, and that goes together. We speak truth, not just love. Truth in love. And the word Peter uses for trials, he could have used many words, but what he's using is this broad, all-encompassing word. Various trials. There's not specific things that are happening that Peter's like, you've got this going. For the people he's writing this to, when he says you're experiencing the various trials, they'll know exactly what he's talking about. And so what we see is, is God sends trials to, to meet needs for us sometimes. Oftentimes trials discipline us when we disobey God. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes they're just preparing us for spiritual growth. Some of the most beneficial times of spiritual growth in, in my life, and I'm sure it's the same for you, come in times when we're facing suffering or persecution or, or trials that are various kinds. When it's a hard season of life, it tends to be where the Lord gets a hold of us the most and pushes us forward the most. Sometimes God sends trials to keep you from sinning in the future, to prevent you from things. God made some of us ugly for a purpose and a reason, amen? make it easier for us. Nobody wanted to amen that. They didn't want to admit. We 
trials are varied. That we can overcome one set of trials, but then we can't think we've mastered all of them. They come in in various shapes and sizes. We see the trials are not easy. This is not Peter telling us, these little trials, just jump over them and move on. This is Peter admitting these are, are difficult. That some of these are heavy and some of these are hard. And, and brothers and sisters, this is a part of what the local church is supposed to be for, that we're going to care for one another, that we're going to bear one another's burdens, one another's trials, that we're going to encourage one another, that we're going to love one another, going to be available for one another. We see the trials are controlled by God. I read this quote this week, and it, 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 was, uh, it stuck with me. When God permits his children to go through the furnace, he keeps an eye on the clock and a hand on the thermostat. Peter calls us to rejoice while those trials are going strong. Not rejoice if those trials are starting to fade away. In fact, the people Peter's writing about, their trials are about to ramp up more. To rejoice in those trials. And the reality is what Peter's calling us to is to find joy that's rooted in Christ and in Christ alone. Because if we find joy rooted in other things, it's always going to be fleeting. If our joy is rooted in financial security, it will rise and it will fall with the amount of money that we have at the present time. If our joy is rooted in a particular relationship, it will rise and it will fall based on how that person responds to us. If our joy is rooted in a social standing, it will rise and it will fall based on whether we are accepted or rejected. If our joy is rooted in present circumstances, it will rise and it will fall on the basis of whether we're having a good day or not. The call to rejoice is not a call to deny suffering. It's a call to put our joy in something that's sustainable and thus sustains us. That even in the midst of real, genuine grief and real, genuine trials, that Christians, we can put our hope in a God who suffered and died for us. Understanding that God is in control of these trials and that whatever comes our way, we respond by growing in Christ and rejoicing in those things. Verse 7. So that the proven character of your faith more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the ESV, it says the genuineness of your faith. So we can see that, that what Peter does is he keeps adding to this link, uh, uh, this chain that he's been building. That one of the main purposes that God gives trials to us is to test the genuineness of our faith. Charles Spurgeon has a quote where he says this, The proven character of your faith, let us not be mistaken. God never gave us a faith to play with. Faith is a sword, but it's not meant to be exhibited upon a parade ground. It's meant to cut and wound and slay. Whoever has it may expect between here and heaven to learn what battle means. God has made nothing in vain, and he especially makes nothing in the spiritual kingdom in vain. He made faith with the intent that it should be used to the utmost and exercised to the full. We must expect trial because trial is the element of faith. Faith without trial is like a diamond uncut, the brilliance of which has never been seen. A fish without water or a bird without air is faith without trial. We may surely expect that our faith be tested. 
Peter gives us an illustration of gold. And so to help me understand this illustration, I texted the two best scientists I know, Ms. Grubin and Ms. Renault. <laughs> and I asked them about gold because I kept reading that at a molecular level, using naturally occurring things, gold cannot be destroyed. That it won't corrode, it won't rust, it won't tarnish, and fire cannot destroy it if there's no impurities in it. And Ms. Grubin said this, it's possible to destroy gold by exposing it to the emissions of a nuclear reactor or a particle accelerator. That can result in gold being transmuted into other elements. I would say those are not natural means. Gold is safe for those with metal allergies. Gold-plated pieces don't last as long. They last 10 to 30 years, according to the jewelry website I found online. But pure gold pieces basically last an eternity. They last a lifetime. As long as you stay away from nuclear accelerators and uh, nuclear reactors and particle accelerators, of course. Gold at this time when Peter's writing this would be considered one of the most precious metals. And, and even that continues today. Gold carries with it, even in our culture, in our life, this valuable thing that people enjoy. And gold, unlike some other metals, when it's heated, is purified. When you heat gold and you melt it down, the impurities rise to the top. And so what a good goldsmith will do is they will melt gold down and then they will just slowly peel the top layers off of the gold to rid it of the impurities because the more pure the gold, the longer it's going to last and the more worth it has. That the fire that the gold is plunged through makes it more pure. Do you see what Peter's saying? fire, that trials that test our faith result in a genuine faith. But I think it's interesting when we think about gold and, and the image that Peter uses. The goldsmith would scrape the top of the gold until, do you know when they would stop? When they could see their reflection. Genesis one twenty seven. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them that you and I are meant to bear the image of God and that Peter is using gold as an illustration here where the Father sends us through these trials to test the genuineness of our faith until we reflect God's face, we bear his image. Paul in Romans 8 says a similar thing. Paul says, We know that all things work together for good for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. Now listen, if, if you've been with us at First Peter, these words are going to sound familiar. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That salvation that God has started is meant to make us bear the image of Christ better, to, to grow us in Jesus. But keep reading, so that we would be the firstborn among brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. It's the chain of salvation that God saves us by to make us more and more like Jesus. But let's keep reading. What then are we to say about these things? 
If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for all of us. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Who, uh, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ is the one who died, but even more has been raised, and he is at the right hand of God and interceding for us. So who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long and we are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither life nor death nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything create, and any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you see what Paul and Peter are saying? That this tested genuineness of our faith, the trials that we go through, the things that suffer, if we're believers in Jesus Christ and he has saved us, that there is nothing that's going to ruin us from that, not even the fiery furnace that melts gold. Instead, it's going to leave us more pure, and as more pure, we reflect God's image better, more clearly. It's these chains. And the chain doesn't hinge on you and I, it hinges on the Lord. And we rejoice in this, not because it makes life easy and not because it makes life comfortable. We rejoice in this hope because it means that God is using us and he's not done with us yet. That we have a living hope that's not dead, that we're being made purified, that our sufferings and our trials aren't in vain and God is not watching us. It means that God is using those things that are causing us to grow in him to be more pure. Because the reality is, even though gold lasts a long time, it's a precious metal that God has made, and it will not last an eternity. But where is our inheritance? In heaven with the Lord, lasting an eternity. What Peter is saying is a genuine faith, tested and tried and true, is far more valuable than the most precious amount of gold you could possibly own. Peter's telling us is a faith that cannot be tested, cannot be trusted. A faith that's dependent on all of my life going exactly the way I want to is not a faith in God, it's a faith in myself. And we're told that these things will be revealed in the revelation from Christ. Revelation of Christ is, it means two different things. It's either a special revelation from Jesus or it's a reference to the second coming of Christ. And here in this passage, it's a reference to the second coming of Christ. And we've seen that, that Peter's been doing this, that that's kind of where our eyes are cast. That we're going to go through these hard times, but Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, it's going to be much better to have genuine faith than castles filled with gold. The idea here is that our salvation is dependent on Jesus. That he's defeated sin and death on the cross. That he's seated at the right hand of God the Father right now, interceding for you and I. That's why we pray in Jesus' name. And that there's a day coming when this kingdom, which is invisible now, will no longer be invisible. And he will rule and reign completely and fully. 
where we will live with God like we were initially designed to, reflecting his image, sin-free. And so Jesus, uh, Peter says, in the short time, in the meantime, your struggles aren't past God. Jesus is coming back. Keep your faith. Don't let those trials, don't let those things result in despair. Rather, let them result in praise and glory and honor of Jesus. I think of Paul and Silas in the prison when their hands are bound and they're, they're bound to their ankles and their feet. And you know what Paul and Silas are doing? Sitting in the prison grumpy, just mumbling about how bad God is because he laid them in there. No, they're singing. I can't imagine how weird it would be for prison guards to see these two men shackled and handcuffed at midnight singing praises to God in a place where it's cold, it's dark, it's inhumane, it's unsanitary. And so God sends an earthquake and they're set free and they're able to leave and the prison guard is getting ready to kill himself because he knows if the prisoners get out, then I'm going to be the one that's killed. I'd rather kill myself than be suffering by Rome. And so as the prison guard has the knife and he's ready to kill himself, he hears Paul and Silas go, "Uh, we didn't leave. The doors open, the shackles are off. We could walk out if we wanted to, but we did not leave. He was inches away from taking his life and spending eternity in hell. And instead, because of their witness and the joy and the rejoicing that they had, they're able to share the gospel with him and he is saved. Brothers and sisters, you and I are foolish and we're deceived. If we think that we will praise God in shackles, uh, in prison, under persecution, if we will not praise God with the freedom that we have right now. We're foolish. Maybe we don't suffer the various trials that Peter is talking about here because we don't take a stand on the things that the Bible calls important. We'll move on. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy it's hard for me to read that passage and not think of Thomas John talks about Thomas in his gospel John chapter 20 verse 24 but Thomas called the twin one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came so the other disciples were telling him we've seen the Lord but he said to them if I do not see the marks of the nails on his hands and put my fingers in the marks of the nails and my hand in his side I will never believe in a week Later, his disciples were indoors again, and Thomas was with them. Even though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. And then he said to Thomas, Hey, why don't you put your finger in and in, in look at my hands? Reach out with your hand and, and put it in my side. Don't be faithless, but believe. And Thomas responded to him, My Lord, my God. And Jesus said, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen yet believe. That's us. That's us in Scripture, those who have not seen in Jesus, have not seen Jesus, but believe in Jesus. The Bible calls us blessed. Let's also note that what Jesus promises is we're blessed if we don't see and we believe. And there's no promise in the rest of the New Testament that Jesus will show up to us personally, and that's where we're going to end up believing, when we see Jesus personally. Instead, what the Bible tells us is that God sends the Holy Spirit. 
There's a reality in us sometimes that we don't like is that we would rather have Jesus physically next to us than we would have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And that's an unbiblical truth that we need to turn from. The Holy Spirit is just as much God as Jesus is. One God, three persons. And this produces within us this joy that's unspeakable and it's inexpressible. It defies outward circumstances and it looks extremely weird to the world. When we're supposed to be grieving because of trials, we're actually rejoicing with a joy that's unceasing. And it's not based upon something we're building for ourselves here. Our name is why we're, no, no, we're a motivation for joy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that causes us to set aside pride, to set aside arrogance, and to cast off everything that causes us to lose track of the main point, which is Christ and him crucified. For us, brothers and sisters, we will die. And in 50 years, if our names are forgotten, but the Savior that we proclaim is exalted, then we've done our job. So in the midst of trials, we rejoice. Verse 9. Because you are receiving the goal of your, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. did a race it was called a two mile relay each person on the relay had to run an 800 which is a fourth half of a mile a fourth of a two mile and so we line up to go run this two mile relay none of us were looking forward to it uh, and we realized we were the only male team that had been entered in the race and so to save time they ran us and the girls teams together and we won and I don't know if it's just because OBU is a small school uh, and if big schools do it different, but our little meet, instead of gold medals, they gave you T-shirts that said champion on the front of them. And so we won the race. We wanted our T-shirts. Nobody at campus is going to be like, who would you win that shirt from? Like, we won it in a race. We're not going to say we beat girls. But they didn't pass out. Like in, in high school, they would either give you the medals or they'd give them to your coaches to give to you. But at this race, you had to walk all the way up to the press box, the booth at the top of the stadium to get your T-shirts. And so we show up, and we didn't win by as much as we should have. We did not run good, but we showed up to collect our prize, these shirts that just said champion on the front of them. They were shocked that we wanted T-shirts for how bad of a race we ran, but we were happy to get the shirts ourselves. We felt like we had won them because we had won the race. That was our goal. We had a, we're in the race, and we were obtaining what we had won, these T-shirts that we were going to wear all around campus and make people think that we were more athletic than we were. That's the idea Peter's getting at here. All of these things that he's been talking about have a goal. It is to obtain the salvation of your souls. It means a couple things. It means first we have to admit that we need to be saved. The gospel's not for people who have it all together. The gospel's not for people who, who don't need anything in life. The gospel's for people who have no other hope. 
We saw in verse 2 that each person of the Trinity plays a role in this salvation, that it's God planned, that it's Son accomplished, and that it's Spirit applied. That God saves, and that we're called to put our faith, our trust, our hope in God, our hope in Jesus. That in the end, if we have trials that come through that, that try to wreck us or destroy us, that those trials, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, don't do that. Instead, they purify us and they refine us. That there's this chain. That if there is no hope, then there is no salvation. If there is no hope, then there is no gospel. But the Bible tells us there is hope. And that we can rejoice because we have this hope that Jesus has given us because he's not dead. And that he set an inheritance for us, a sure salvation that's being protected by God. And that we will be tested with various trials that will come around. That if our faith is genuine and true, we do not lose those uh, salvation. We don't believe you can lose your salvation, but you don't fall away. What I love here is we miss is Peter was martyred. Peter was killed for his faith. So he's not writing this as somebody who's protected up in a castle with an army in these thick walls. This is Peter writing, who's going to be killed for his faith in, in probably four to six short years after writing this letter. It's Emperor Nero, and under his persecution, he lights Rome on fire, he blames the Christian, and he persecutes them. One of the ways that Nero would do this, it, it's terrible, but he would take Christians, and he would tie them to stakes in his backyard, he would douse them in flammable oil, and they would light them on fire as he would host dinner parties. I think we've all prayed to be a light to the world, but I don't think that's the imagery we think of. Yet what Peter is saying is the suffering and the trials that we go through, no matter what it looks like, is not beyond God. Peter's saying that you're in this world, and if you're a Christian in this world, you're blessed to be a blessing. So go do that. Disciple the found. Evangelize the lost. And know that because the world hates God, that it's going to hate God's followers. It hates Jesus, so it's going to hate Jesus' followers. So while we are doing these things, while we are seeking the good of our brothers and sisters around us who don't know Jesus, we will be persecuted, we will suffer, we will have trials, and those things strengthen us. They don't hinder us. Those are the things that build us up in trust and faith in Christ. That in the midst of those trials and those struggles, what we understand and we realize is Christ does not let us go. In fact, it's an encouragement to us. If we go through trials and we maintain our faith, we can trust that our faith is genuine and true. We can trust that there's a heavenly goldsmith who's exposing us to a furnace and is continually scraping off of the impurities so that he can see himself reflected in us more purely uh, sin-free. So what this means is that you and I need to be ready that our faith will be tested. We need to pray that our faith holds up. Because a weak faith in a strong God is much more valuable than all that glitters and all that's gold. We seek joy, not in the world, but in Christ. We don't run. We don't cave. We hold tight to Jesus. 
that he will hold tighter to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. Thank you that your gospel is 